0: Let's not forget the 21st of this month that we're going to Countryside Community. Going to have a nice outreach over there and uh, be praying on that. Also, men's breakfast starts back Saturday. Uh, Bob is back, so that'll be a great blessing. And don't forget Pastor Jonathan's Bible study this tomorrow. Tomorrow, so it should be good. Uh, You know, I can't hold water. Joanne called Lydia, and I was sort of being a eavesdropper. Uh, they were laughing and joking, and I knew that was some pretty good news. So when she got off the phone, she told me that uh, Rick and Joanne, uh, they have a good report. Continue to pray for them. I'm not going to say it, so if you want to know, just call them. They'll be waiting on you to call and speak to them. Continue to lift them up in prayer, because God is certainly answering those prayers, and we should be excited about that, that when his children cry out to him, like I said, he, he hears, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. But we're in the book of 2 Samuel. It picks up the account directly from 1 Samuel where it left off. And uh, we, should, we should really expect that because first, until it, it was written in Greek, 1 Samuel, well, Samuel was just one book. So I like when it just falls right back into place. Remember in chapter 30 of 2 Samuel, David did not get to go to war with Achish and the other four lords of the Philistines. They turned him back. Really, it was the Lord turning David back. I believe that David would have fought with the Philistines. And the Lord, knowing that, he turns them back and they go up south to Ziglag. Remember, as they go to Ziglag, they see the burning, the smoke, and the Amalekites have attacked and took all the women, the children, the supplies, all of those things. And it was at that moment, David had been estranged from the Lord for many years, really in a backslidden state. And he calls for the ephod And the Bible says that David strengthened himself in the Lord. And so after that, they go and they rescue everybody. Uh, Everything that they had taken, David gets back. But while that battle was happening, remember I talked about it was another battle going on up north on Mount Gilboa. Saul, his sons were there. They get into battle with the Philistines. Remember Saul was head and shoulders taller than anyone in Israel. So you you weren't probably going to beat this man one on one hand combat. And so the scripture tells us they shot arrows and they killed him. The scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit lets us know because we'll get back to that that Saul died in this battle. And so Where 2 Samuel picks up at, David does not know this yet. We know it. David doesn't know it. And uh, verse 1 tells us, Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziglag. Once again, David's heart is knitted back with the Lord. He's in communion. He's in fellowship with the Lord at this time. It says, On the third day, behold it happened that a man came from Saul's camp and his clothes torn and dust on his head. David would know right away that this is not a good sign because in the culture, when there was dust on your head and your clothing is torn, it's a sign of grieving. So he knows this doesn't add up properly for a victory for the Israelites. So it was when he came to David, that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. I don't, I don't think he had escaped. Then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. Now, David knew the condition of a rejected military that Israel has. It was almost being split at the seams because many wanted to go to David. But Saul kind of kept them together. And he also knew the power of the Philistines. So he said, no doubt it must have went down that way. Verse five tells us, so David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? And once again, that old saying, oh, what a tangled web we weave. And that's what he's doing to himself. It says, then the young man who told him said, and I believe this young man was rehearsing the words that he would say when he would come across David. And he has it down well, as I happen by chance to be on Mount Gilboa. The only reason the Amalekites, this wasn't the Amalekites' war. It was not their battle. The only reason this Amalekite was there, because the Amalekites were known to pillage the men that were dead before the victors would come and take the loot. And so that's why he was there. It says, there was Saul leaning on his spear. And indeed, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. Reminds me of Samuel when the Lord was speaking. Here I am. So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. I wanted this just say, doggone it of all the people, an Amalekite. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. Before David could respond, the man brought out two treasures, he brought out his crown and a bracelet. And so he concluded, and I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Once again, this man is an Amalekite. That's how the flesh does, because the Amalekites are, is a picture of the flesh, and they try to cozy up always to the man of the Spirit. The fact that David was far from this battlefield as well because it shows us that David had nothing to do with Saul's demise. And his reaction also uh, proves that David does this in sincerity. His motives are pure. And in a day where everything is going dark on this battlefield, David gives us a valuable lesson about the judgment of God, because that's what we're going to look at. The judgment of God that we all must face. Hebrews ten thirty one tells us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A, a fearful thing for the sinner, not for the saint. After they know the truth, and what he's saying in context of this verse, once you know the truth, about God and his son, Jesus Christ, that you're born again and you continue in your sin, habitually doing the same thing. Hebrew tells us literally that you trample the son of God underfoot, counteth the blood of the covenant, that new covenant of grace. Oh, it doesn't matter what I do because... I'm under grace. Once again, that's not what grace is for. By which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. What the Holy Spirit, I believe, is wanting us to realize is that God's judgment is always a call for grief and repentance. This dude, this Amalekite, all he wanted was honor's and rewards. And that's all he could think about at this time. And you know, I can understand his ploy because he's saying, I know David and Saul did not get along. Maybe David will rejoice now that Saul is dead. And you know what? A lesser man would have did that. After all, David, remember, he had spent several years running as a fugitive, as Saul is unjustly persecuting him. Everything that David's heart might have desired, remember, including a return home, he was a fugitive there, the fulfillment of all of God's great promises David had but had not attained after 20 or 30 years. So we can understand this Amalekite's thinking that a feast would break out after this message. But instead, a fast will break out. David reacted, and he lunched, and he tore his clothing. It says in verse 11, Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son. For the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David understands that God is displeased at any time by a heart that is vengeful. The Bible says in the New Testament, the wrath of man does not work. The righteousness of God. I have to tell myself all that all the time because when I look at things, just like that young lady who who was murdered in Memphis just for no reason, and you think of all the things that are happening in the world, and Lord, why don't you come? But then I have to think about myself when I was a sinner. Vengeance is the Lord. That's what he's saying. And even with our enemies, vengeance is the Lord. I'm sure it was David. You know, he is the one that probably taught his son Solomon some of these Proverbs. David would probably say, he says in 17, Proverbs 17, the latter part of verse 5, he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. We need to remember that. And one reason I think that verse is there. When we look at so much injustice as happening in the world, once again we cry out, where are you at Lord? Vengeance. Vengeance. But once again we have to be reminded that it is the Lord who does that. All we can do is look at the scene but we cannot do divine judgment because only the Lord knows the heart. That's why it's an offense to him because it shows self-righteousness on our part. I wouldn't do that. that. I wouldn't do this. All of those things. We're not competent enough to judge the heart. That only uh, loans to God and what he does. John Calvin, I like what he says. He says this, God does not want us to be so presumptuous in our rejoicing that we fail to consider our own sins. And so displease him. We ought also to tremble before his majesty, knowing that we too are as deserving of punishment and grief as those whom he punishes. If not for the grace of God, so go I. Paul put it this way in Romans twelve nineteen: Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to the wrath of God. For it is written... Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Also, David's reaction to the news of Saul's death shows that he had evidently been meditating in his heart. And he had forgiven Saul a long time ago. David is going to understand that he's going to be king. And the same grace that God Almighty issued to Saul, he wants for himself. Once again, we have to understand the enormity of our sin, whether it's just a little white law, whatever it is, the wages of sin is death. Romans 12, 14 tells us, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, just, he just doesn't say that to say it. God says that because that's what God wants his children to do. I hear people say, I haven't haven't arrived there yet. Well, continue to be in your word, continue to be in prayer, continue to be in fellowship with the Lord. We'll get there. And then he says in, in the same chapter, verse 17 and 18, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. If we want to honor God and live peaceably with those around us, we, like David, must sanctify our hearts. We must yield to the Holy Spirit working in us and the privilege and the honor that the Holy Spirit indwells us. And remember, Jesus Christ is not only Savior, but he's Lord And he does not make suggestions to us, but he calls us to forgive those that have sinned against us. And that's what David does with Saul. And we have to understand that David does this without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Grace is there. We have the Holy Spirit residing in us. And we battle these things. And the Holy Spirit is there to say, hey, there's your grace. No matter how anyone has offended us, we should be quick to forgive. So he says, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David shows us how our heart should be. And we should be grieved, as I was thinking about this, by the ineffectiveness of the body of Christ. And what I mean by that is, We can get caught up, I'm conservative, I'm liberal, I'm this, I'm that. And that's okay. I believe the scripture is conservative. But my point is, even when there's teaching in the word by other pastors or other churches, and I'm I'm quick to say, well, they're watering down the word. And as I was looking at this, The Holy Spirit reminded me of what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, a lengthy passage, but I'm going to read it, 12 through 18. But I want you to know, brethren, Paul is in chains in Philippi, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Hooray! So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, they're encouraged, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now here it is. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, here it is, whether in pretense or in truth, whether it's watered down or not, Paul says Christ is preached. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Praise God that in the end, Jesus Christ is being preached. And even when we think some are just watering down the gospel. Paul is, effect, saying, thank God that the word of God is going out. I know we, it's sort of like picking your battles. Paul also said, if anyone, even if an angel in light preaches another gospel, may he be accursed. That's when we stand up and say, hey, there's no truth. If they're telling me that salvation is another way apart from Jesus Christ, then I would quickly put on their blog. They're speaking heresy. They're they're preaching damnation because people might be believing that. And so once again, uh, David is saying, yes, Saul did many things wrong. And we'll find this out in the dirge, he writes. But Saul had good qualities. God used him as far as he could use him until Saul turned away. So we have to understand, even when someone is doing something out of our lane of the gospel, we should be praying, we should be trying to correct, but we should be mourning and praying for them, not condemning them. David did not do that. Once again, only divine judgment can come from God. And and he kind of corrects the whole thing when Jesus says this in Luke 18. He says, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. God was long suffering with Saul. I believe Saul reached the point where he stepped across that line, the point of no return. I've said this before. I used to tell my kids all the time I don't have to worry about telling them anymore. I think they're walking with the Lord. Just because the Lord was long-suffering and merciful for me time and time again, it does not mean he will be that long-suffering and merciful to you. He will give you space to repent. But don't look just because somebody else did this and did that and they, and they wallowed in sin for 20 years and then the Lord saved them. I'm going to go that route. You're playing Russian roulette. God's judgment, he comes when it's time to do that. So he's saying even the enemies of our enemies, we should be merciful. Jesus said we should be praying for them, that the Lord would turn them. And that's what's happening now. So, this Amalekite, he thinks he's going to get a reward of some sort. But David and his men are weeping. They are mourning for the loss of Saul because the wages of sin is death to everyone on the planet since Adam. And we should be mourning for those sinners that God would open their eyes. And God is a God of justice. He's a God of judgment, Whether there is secret sins or public sins. Jesus said, nothing is covered, covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So let's not play the hypocrite because no one else knows. We have to remember, God knows. Paul said this, That on the day of judgment, God will judge the secrets of men's heart. So the wisest thing an unbeliever can do, the wisest thing a backslidden Christian can do, is fall on the mercy of Jesus Christ, ask him to forgive you of your sins, and begin to walk upright with him. It tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, once again, it's plenty of scholars out there that says, when this Amalekite came, his word was true. Saul was still hanging on to his very life, so he put him to death. But that's not what the scripture says. That's not what uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30 says about it. I like what one guy said. He says, if you ever have a choice between the word of God, which is the Holy Spirit, and Amalekite, always ride with God, not the Amalekite. And that's what we do here. This Amalekite came and he took advantage of the situation And he sees the crown and he sees the bracelet and he says, I know I can get a reward for this. Because everyone knows that David and Saul has been battling for 30 years. Saul has been chasing him down for 30 years. So he thinks he's going to get a reward. And when he begins to speak to David, whether he was telling the truth or not, and no doubt about it, he was not telling the truth. If he did put him to death, finish him off, it would have been sacrilege. Because even David says, how could I strike and kill the Lord's anointed? Nevertheless, uh, an Amalekite does that. So it says, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. By this time, they had fasted. If I was the Amalekite, I'm just thinking about it. If he didn't give me a reward when I first told him, he's not giving me one. Okay, see y'all later. (laughs) No, I have to give him credit. He hangs around hoping he's going to get one, but it does not happen. It says this, then David said to the young man who told him, By this time, they're eating. I'm sure he's eating also. Where? Tell me again, where are you from? And he answered, and this shows he's a knucklehead by saying this, I am the son of an alien and a Malachite. So David said to him, how was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Remember, in the cave of, of Adullam. When all of his men were saying, slew him, here's your opportunity. David, kill him. God has put you in this situation. And David just cut off the corner of his robe. And remember, remember it says his heart smote him because of that. So David didn't even do this. And now here comes this Amalekite, and he does this. Then David called one of the young men. And said, go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, your blood is on your own head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So David rebukes him as his young man comes and puts him to death. Then David lamented. That word lamented there is kun, K-U-N. And what it means, he begins to write this dirge or this song because it's something David is not only wanting his men to know, but when he gets the the kingdom, Judah and Israel, he wants everyone to know this song because it's very important. And the song is called the song of the bow. It's not about a bow, but that's just the name of the song. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son, And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. This guy has to have no bitterness in him. David, for him to say this. After once again, 30, 40 years of being just sought after and persecuted. He calls him the beauty of Israel. We know once again, he, Saul was head and shoulders taller than any man. Saul could have been the dude if he was living at this time. He could have been Thor in the Marvel movies. This guy was handsome, the scripture says. He was buff. The scripture tells us all these things. And God used him once again. Let's not forget that. God used him for a while, as long as Saul allowed God to use him. And I don't think sometimes, and I know it can, it's bad, when you hear of whether they're well-known pastors of mega churches or a church with 50 people in it, and the pastor falls into sin, whether it's adultery, whether, uh, embezzlement, whatever it is, and we're quick To say, oh, I knew this, and we should have known that. And we need to once again think back of the good things that that pastor did, if there were any good things. Because that's what David is doing by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's kind of boasting on the deeds that the Lord did through Saul. And we need to remember that. And then he says, How the mighty have fallen. He will say that three times. That's like the chorus of this dirge. And it's there for a reason. He says, tell it not in Gap. But they've already did that. They said that in the last chapter of of 1 Samuel. They already knew it. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. That's what they're doing now. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa. Let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fills of offering, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there. The shield of Saul not anointed with oil. And really it says no longer anointed with oil. And what they mean by that, not that Saul was, well, he was anointed king, but it doesn't mean that here. What it means, they had these shields of leather. And they had to keep it oil. Matter of fact, they used olive oil. So when that sword of that spear, it just wouldn't become brittle. And the, and the protection wouldn't be there anymore. And what he's saying, you don't have to worry about anointing his, his, his shield anymore with oil. It won't be used anymore. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. We know Jonathan was a valiant man. He's saying he fought to the end along with his dad, Saul, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. They killed their few. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury." who put ornaments of gold on your apparel, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. So once again, three times he says, how the mighty have fallen. Remember, God chose Saul to be the first king of Israel. The Lord anointed him And once again, Saul started out very well. He was humble at the beginning. And so the question is, so how does the mighty fall? I believe it's the same way that growth occurs, little by little. I'll give an example. I eat and I love to eat. I've been doing better. Reese's peanut butter cups. I love to eat carrot cake. I love to eat pizza day in and day out. And one morning I woke up and here it is. It didn't happen overnight. It happened little by little. And that's the same way when we fall away from the Lord. No one falls away in one night with the Lord. We might not see it happening, but on the inside of that tree, it's rotting. And we don't know until the final collapse. And that's what he says here. Isaiah 28.10 tells us, For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. It's the same way we grow. That's how the mighty Falls. It's a little compromise, a little at a time. And once again, it seems so insignificant at first. You hear the Holy Spirit speak, and you say, oh, I'm fine. Could never happen to me. And you continue, and you continue. And Satan is good at waiting. He has a lot of time. I know the scripture says time is short, but he knows his time compared to our time. I can wait on you. And he does the same thing, remember, with Samson. Samson, uh, Delilah wanted to know, where does your great strength lies? And he tells her, if you bind me securely with new ropes, well, what did the enemy do? He did that. Satan will take anything we give him. If you weave My locks, the seven locks of my head in the web of a loom. Well, she did that. Then finally, if you cut off my hair. So once again, Satan will take whatever you give him. The scripture says it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. That's why we must walk circumspect. That's why we must examine ourselves daily and make sure there's no slippage. In our lives, because we know the heart is prone to wonder, deceitful among all else, who can know it? And so when our heart is saying one thing, and I'm I'm about to say, oh, yeah, you're right, heart, you're right. I have to go to the word and let it flay me, divide me between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. And I said, no, 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 heart, you were not right. Your word is right. And we get back on track. Saul had opportunity after opportunity. So what? My kingdom will not last as long as I, I wanted it to. So what after that? Then I'm not even going to be a king anymore. And he continued down that road, God prompting, God pulling, God prodding until he crossed the line of no return. So he says in verse 26. David says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. And I want us to know there is not the slightest hint of of sexual connotations here, like perverse people try to make it. it. It's not like that. We have to understand that these men and the Bible speaks about it. In the Old Testament, the Bible says they would fight day and night. Can you imagine holding a sword, fighting, and and a friend of yours is by your right side and by your left side, and you're fighting, and you're helping them, and they're helping you? Think about uh, World War II, World War I, uh, even Iraq wars, and how people, those soldiers, they have a bond. And they stay in touch with one another. And they would lay their lives for their, down for their brothers. Well, that's what David is saying here. This man, Jonathan, says, hey, he was the crown prince. And says, no, I believe what you're telling me. I believe you're in tune with the Lord. And if that's what the Lord says, I want to be obedient to the Lord no matter if it cost me my dad, even though he stayed by Saul's side. And David says, hey, I love this man. It's only a perverse culture like ours that would think something like this, but that never entered the mind of God. And he says in verse 27, for the third time, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perish. We're going to go through just a few verses in chapter 2. It says, it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord. David, once again, he's back in fellowship with the Lord. And now he's asking, Lord, what do you want me to do? That should be on our lips all the time saying, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, where shall I go up? He doesn't want to make a move right now without him. And he said to Hebron. Remember, Hebron was the place that Abraham dwelt. He loved Hebron. It's the place in Joshua chapter 14 that uh, Joshua gives to Caleb as his own heritage there, this parcel of land. And the word Hebron means joined together. It can mean union or communion. And what's really taking place is is God has called David back to communion. And David is there. And David is growing in the Lord there. David has been in a backslidden state. But now that he's back in communion with the Lord... It's like baseball players say, and I've never played baseball. I played softball and I struck out all the time. When you're hitting that ball uh, game in and game out, what do you call that, Brian? The sweet spot. And that's where David is. And that's where all of us should want to be in our relationship with Jesus Christ. That sweet spot. We're asking him and we're not striving anymore. And we're not trying to get a position anymore. We're satisfied just being in fellowship with Jesus. And he's moving and promoting on our behalf. Because Judah is about to make David king. And David is not even striving. Hey, I'm just happy to be in fellowship with the Lord. But since he's in fellowship, since he's in communion with the Lord, the Lord is blessing him. People say all the time, how? Do I get back with the Lord? As if it's a geographical area, as if you need a GPS to say, okay, let me put it on my phone. How do I get back to the Lord? All we have to do is look at David. If we've been in sin, we repent of those things. And if we do that with a genuine heart, remember when David grabbed the ephod and said, the Lord didn't say, Hadn't heard from you in 10 years. David cried out to the Lord with a genuine heart and the Lord showed up then and there. That's all it takes. And you're back in communion with the Lord. It says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the only way we can, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. One thing I know, when you're not in true fellowship with the Lord, you begin to become dry. You don't want to hang around believers And, you know, the enemy tries to put you in a corner and says, the Lord doesn't care. He doesn't love you anymore. You're never going to get back there. But once again, if you're genuine with the Lord and ask him to forgive you of your sins, you're right back in fellowship. Verse two. So David went up there to Judah and his two wives also. And he know him, the Jezreelite and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him every man with his household so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron the men who were went to battle with him all of this time they're also being blessed by following their head which is Jesus Christ as believers we know our head is Jesus Christ and as long as we're following him whether we are in trials we will be blessed Blessings come from being underneath the body of Christ and Jesus being the head. And so they're being blessed here. Oh, how the mighty has fallen. And the reason I say that again, because we will see David right now is in fellowship with the Lord. But already the little foxes are beginning to spoil the vine because the Holy Spirit tells us what? And he goes up with his two wives. By the time we get to the end of chapter, when we get to chapter 3, David won't have two wives anymore. Guess how many wives he will have? Six wives. And we will begin to see the slippage. He knows. God does not wink at sin. I know the culture and all that. But we know from the beginning God didn't set it up like that. So even now, the little foxes are spoiling the vine. Verse 4. Then the men of Judah came, and there they, here it is, they anointed David king over the house of Judah. He's not striving. He's not doing anything. He's not laboring. He's just hanging out with the Lord. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord to Saul and have buried him. Remember when Saul first became king, he goes back when he was humble into the field and he's plowing with the oxes. And all of a sudden he hears this great mourning and this great lamenting and this crying. And he says, what's going on? And uh, I think it was Ahash the king of the Ammonites had came down and was taking over Jabesh-Gilead. And they were saying, what are we going to do? And Saul, remember, he takes the, the cart and he breaks the cart down, chops the cart up, makes a fire, and he, and, he, and he sacrifices the two oxen and he goes up with the men of Israel and they take back Jabesh-Gilead from the Ammonites. Then they go back to Samuel And that's when they anoint Saul king for the second time. And everybody has rallied around king, around Saul. And so the men of Jabesh Gilead never forgot that. David understanding that. Because remember, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30 tells us they have hung Saul, Malkishua, uh, Jonathan, and Amenadab on the wall of Bethshin. And so the men of Jabesh Gilead, they go and they take him down. They burn the bones and they bury him underneath a tamarisk tree. That's what has happened. And it says in verse six, and now may the Lord show kindness, David says, and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant. David is saying, be encouraged. We're together with you. I'm your king now. For your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah, which included the territory of Benjamin also, because Saul was a Benjamite, Benjamite, has anointed me king over them. So David is being very diplomatic at this time. He's being wise because the Lord is with him. We'll stop right there, but what I want us to take from this and remember, we need to... The Apostle Paul says we need to walk circumspectly, acrobose, on that high wire, noticing what's going around in our lives, making sure we are following and applying the Word of God to our lives, making sure we are in the Scriptures. Because the Scripture, once again, It will admonish us. It will rebuke us when we need it. But if we never pick up the word of God, how do we know our way? And we need to also understand that if we are believers, God has given us grace by the power of the Holy Spirit to pray for those who persecute us, pray for those who despitefully use us, pray for our enemies. Because that's what the Lord has called us to do. And we have the ability to do that. And always understand that the Lord is with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And as long as we're in the straight and narrow walking with him, blessings are going to come. Spiritual blessings. He has blessed us. Ephesians 2 tells us. With all spiritual blessings in the, heavenly re- in the heavenly realm, those are what's beneficial to the child of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your scriptures. Lord, but once again, we don't want to be, as James tells us, that man in your word beholding his face in the mirror and quickly Forgets what he looks like. We don't want to be like Reuben when Jacob prophesied and he said, Reuben, my firstborn, you are unstable as water. We don't want that, Lord. We want to be stable in your word. We want to behold your face. And as we're beholding your face, we are molded more and more into your image. Father, give us grace to run this race well. Give us grace to be a praying people, a praying fellowship. Lord, once again, thank you for the good news that we, we, we heard about Joanne, Lord, and how their spirits are uplifted, and we thank you for that. Lord, we continue to pray for those that are sick in the fellowship. We continue to ask you to keep us safe, Father God, we continue to ask us to give us hearts to evangelize, to not forget about the loss. And we'll be sure to give you the praise, the glory, and the honor. And we ask all of these things in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.